Hey, everybody, this is Jeff Schulman, and I want to thank you for being a part of the Product Management Center community. Together, we are building a more inclusive future. I'll be back to this podcast in just a few short weeks, and in the meantime, our associate director, Kara, is taking over hosting duties, making sure that all of you still have access to some of the best and brightest minds in product management. Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. So again, thanks for joining us for this week of How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. I'm Kara Fictorin, Associate Director at the Product Management Center at the University of Washington. If you've been listening in, you'll know that we are on a mission to empower diverse product leaders to drive success developing innovations that are inclusive to diverse audiences. This week on the podcast, we are going to be talking about execution frameworks and just how important they are for product managers. With me this week, I have Arjun and Liang. And so I'm going to pause here and let you both introduce yourselves. Arjun, would you come off mute and say hello to our audience? Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Kara. So I'm excited to join you all today. Hi, everyone. I'm Arjun. Uh, I'm a product manager on YouTube. And I joined Google actually via its associate product management program right after graduating from University of Washington. So go dogs. And as part of the APM program, I got the opportunity to rotate between different teams at Google, working on all kinds of projects from small to large. Awesome. Thank you. And Liang, can you come say hi to our audience? Of course. Hi, Kiara. Uh, nice meeting you and very glad to be here again. I'm actually a UW alumni myself as well. I graduated from the Amsterdam program in 2015. Since then, I joined Microsoft as a site reliability engineer. I was working on SharePoint at OneDrive for about two years. Then I moved uh, to San Francisco and joined Airbnb. At my journey at Airbnb, I was a software engineer on the storage team for two years. And then I started this transition to be in product management. And for the last four years of my time at Airbnb, I've been focusing on cloud infrastructure, developer tooling, and security as a product manager. Recently, I joined a new company called Webflow. Mission of Webflow is to bring development superpowers to everyone. We want to create the best visual development platform to enable everyone built for the back. I'm the lead product manager on infrastructure team at Webflow. Awesome. Thanks for that. All right. So before we dive in, a quick pulse check. So Arjun, Liang, on a scale of 1 to 10, how important is product execution? That's it, 11. <laughs> awesome. Liang? Yeah, I was going to say 100. <laughs> Perfect. I was hoping, because if you said anything less than 10, I don't know if this is the show for you. All right. So let's dive in. Arjun, can you kick us off? Could you just start by describing really, you know, what the importance of product execution? M more than my uh, numbering system there, just give us a description. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So when it comes to product, I actually think there are like two key buckets, right? One is the product strategy and the other is product execution. And the strategy piece is all about the what and the why, like what are we going to do? Why are we going to do it? 
it's kind of setting the high level vision for the rest of the year. And the execution is taking that vision and diving deep, right? It's coming up with the concrete steps on how we're going to materialize our vision and working with the team to, um, as my kind of previous manager used to say, uh, go make things happen. And I was very confused what he meant by like, go make it happen. Uh, but then I realized it's actually the ability to get things done by taking this vague customer pain point and converting it into a well-crafted product solution for your users in a quick and timely manner, right? And I think that is the essence of product execution. It's it's the nuts and bolts of PM, and it's where you actually go make something people want come alive, right? Uh, so I think that's that's what product execution is to me. Anything you'd like to add, Liang, to that idea? Yeah, so uh, to give you a very concrete example, uh, Airbnb, the vision there is to really make everyone belong anywhere. And uh, how do we do that? And there are the strategy piece to lead us to that inspirational vision. But actually, the day-to-day groundwork, how do we execute to make sure that we follow that strategy and then realize that vision? I think that's a lot of product management usually product managers, you know, like overlook its importance. Having an aspirational vision is very important. You're telling people where to go and, you know, rally people behind to deliver the great products. But also the execution piece, so many things can go wrong. Uh, For example, like, are you shipping the products faster than your competitors? The product quality of your, what you ship to the end users, are they satisfied and how do we make sure that we ship the best product with limited resources and those are just some concrete challenges that a product manager would encounter every day so product execution is actually i i would think is the most important thing in product management today it's all about execute execute faster execute better and just execute all right execute faster execute better so let's keep going down this road there are we you know we all know there are frameworks in product management and how important those are and so let's start talking a bit about the frameworks that one would use in product execution arjun would you like to chat about that a little bit yeah absolutely so the framework that i personally love is something that i came up by myself and it's inspired by plenty of other execution frameworks out there so i kind of just took that was inspired and tweaked it a little bit for what works for me. Um, I call it the MAV or MAV framework and uh, M standing for motion, A for action, and V for velocity. Uh, I'm happy to go into it in more detail now or later as you see fit, Kara. Yeah, let's let's dive into it a little bit. I mean, super cool that you created your own framework and, and it's really actually worked for you. You put it into practice. So yeah, tell us a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So the intent behind this framework is really to help me understand the state of projects in my own portfolio, right? So for example, projects that haven't been started and require some investigation fall under the motion umbrella for me. And the idea here is that I have to convince myself that this is a good problem to pursue. I look at data, I look at stats, I look at user interviews. And all I'm doing in this phase is really building momentum on those ideas uh, that were just kind of just sitting idle until I picked up on it, right? And uh, that's what motion is for me. And once I generate some kind of momentum, I share it with the broader team. I get some stakeholders to drop comments on my docs and my decks. Um, and then I know this project has graduated to the action phase, right? And in this case, 
I realize that I'm refining my hypothesis. I'm incorporating suggestions based on feedback I'm hearing. I'm having healthy debates with my team members. And I also find quick and easy ways to go test these hypotheses by prototyping, uh, doing user interviewing, interviews, doing like trusted tester studies, what we like to call it at Google. Um, and once I feel good about it, I prioritize it in the roadmap, put together a team to actually go make things happen. And that's when, to me, I enter the velocity phase, right? And this is where I try to keep the team focused because there are a lot of edge cases that keep coming up uh, when you are in this in this phase of velocity. And uh, I think the most important piece is to avoid scope creep and unblock where where necessary, get all the approvals needed. So when when time comes to shove, like we are ready to go and like the project is not going to be blocked by some stakeholder or some approval, right? Um, so it's the velocity phase of a project. So this like, just helps me know where in my project portfolio do all of these projects fit? And that can allow me to structure my day in a more meaningful manner. Thank you. Okay, so build motion, take action, increase velocity. Liang, can you chat with us a bit about the frameworks that you use, things that you've honed in your work to really help with execution? Yeah, I'd love to share that. So there are actually uh, different aspects of product execution. And I want to take a step back and set some context. Uh, I consider myself a platform product manager. So basically the product that we ship enable our internal teams for them to build products for our end users. It is a little bit different from the product teams who are actually building customer-facing features. I will give you an example. Like we shipped a lot of developer toolings at Airbnb to empower our engineers to ship high-quality features to delight our you know, guests and host. Uh, so a lot of the projects that I've worked on that leads into uh, extends to multiple quarters. So how do we make sure that the team are aligned and also making good progress in terms of the goals that we want to achieve? And usually those goals and metrics uh, are year-long metrics that we want to move the needle for. So typically we use IGEL and uh, OKR, and those are industry-tested product execution frameworks. And again, I won't go into the detail of the definition. I think I think that every product manager are familiar with those words. I'm going to share some like actual usage of like uh, those frameworks. For example, on our team, what we've seen that work best is to have the quarterly or biannually planning with OKRs, uh, objectives and key results. What we want to do with OKRs is to make sure all the objectives ladder up to the company goals or initiatives or whatever uh, higher level objective you want to achieve for that quarter or for that half. And then within each quarter, we work with the teams to make sure that we execute on a biweekly sprint. And this way, we can set different milestones every two weeks to make sure that we are making steady progress towards the goal that we set uh, for that quarter, which is uh, achieving those objectives and key results. And we do that every quarter and every quarter. And after a half, we'll do a retro to make sure like uh, what are things that have been going well, what are things that we could start doing, and then uh, making sure that we move that North Star metrics for that year. Uh, so that's how we kind of combine OKR and uh, IGEL or like sprints uh, into our actual day-to-day work. All right. 
Thank you. So I wanted to ask you both to sort of chat a bit more about some of the challenges. You know, a framework down on paper sounds easy. Okay, I follow these steps, get it done, follow this calendar. But, you know, what are really kind of things that come up to really derail your ability to execute? You want to take that first, Liang? Yeah, I can take that. You know, uh, as product managers, we love frameworks uh, because they help us, you know, think more uh, structurally and uh, it lays out a clear mental map to our stakeholders so they are aligned as well. But I think some cases we might take the frameworks to kind of the other extreme where we strictly follow the process. One anti-pattern using OKR is really trying to make everyone to write super good OKRs and then later found out, oh, like the goals or the objectives have already changed, where we spend too much time on wordsmithing a project that everyone kind of already aligned on. So I would say like frameworks like Arjun shares, there are a lot of industry tested product execution framework that are out there. Take those as the scaffolding and then put whatever that fit your team and uh, you know your personal preference or your team's preference and then in the reality I think that's kind of how I've seen succeed in my uh, day-to-day work strictly follow any framework without understanding what your team does I think that doesn't set up for success yep absolutely um, Arjun could you weigh in a bit more on that like some of the challenges and how you the framework that you created really helps you get past those I think to, to Ling's point earlier, uh, I think OKRs is a great one. We definitely use OKRs a lot and used extensively at Google uh, from all the way top down to bottom up, right? And when I created this framework, it wasn't necessarily to like add on to the entire team. It's more a personal project execution framework for me. Um, and what I started noticing was how much time certain projects take. I, I faced a lot of problems when it comes to estimating bandwidth and how much I could take on. And uh, I realized that having this custom framework helped me figure out how much time I have to dedicate and which projects needed more attention than others, right? So projects in the motion motion state might take up 30% of my time, right? And I just quickly put together a doc and I shared it with my team being like, hey, this is the problem. What do you guys think of the solution and this hypothesis? And then projects that are in the action state require a lot more testing, a lot more like refining. And that takes up majority of my time, right? And that's where I know that I need to spend this much time here. And this project requires a lot more focus from me. And then when they enter the velocity phase, using the agile process and all these other ones, then I know that I can step back a little bit and let the team run and only help as needed. So I think the framework really helps me figure out where I need to spend my time and be more efficient. Yep. Thank you for giving some more insights on that. So I'm interested in your perspectives on, you know, how shipping product and and using these execution frameworks really shows up differently in small to large-sized organizations. Go right ahead, Liang. I was going to just jump ahead and uh, share some of my examples because I recently uh, changed my job from a fairly kind of big company, Airbnb, like we went to the hyper growth from a startup all the way up through IPO and after pandemic. And now I've joined a fairly smaller uh, company compared to Airbnb in size. So I would say like smaller companies tend to move a lot faster just because, uh, you know, there are different constraints. We need to be competitive. We want to ship faster. We want to make sure that we address the customer's needs in time so that we beat our competitor. Whereas in larger 
more mature companies, I think we found that market fit, we found that market share, and we are kind of stable and just trying to sustain the growth and success. Uh, so the velocity of shipping a product definitely varies a lot. Uh, another part is mature companies tend to have a lot more processes in place in terms of shipping products because we have a lot more users and the things, even just a little small feature that we ship to our you know, guys and hosts at Airbnb, we need to make sure they're very, very uh, high quality because it impacts like millions of customers at the end of the day. So the velocity there is a lot slower, but we focus a lot more on quality. Whereas smaller companies, I think velocity definitely matters more than quality at certain bases because we do want to make sure that we can ship and iterate and also like try to find that long-term product vision or also the product market share uh, so that we can grow uh, continuously. Uh, so I would say product, uh, shipping the product velocity is definitely a key difference. Another thing that I want to share is uh, the resource uh, and prioritization. I think at the bigger companies, we tend to have a lot more resources. And uh, prioritization, if you're like fully funded, it doesn't necessarily have to prioritize ruthlessly A versus B. Whereas smaller companies, you have so many things that you can do and you have to prioritize between like a lot of features and also making sure you know you think you take product execution into consideration like what does it mean to ship a versus b at this quarter i think those are the, a lot of the questions that we need to answer like in our day-to-day job all right arjun you want to weigh in a little bit about that i absolutely agree i think as a smaller r you can definitely move much faster right uh, there is this great book called the innovation stack uh, written by jim McAlee, and he's the co-founder of Square, and he writes about how startups build products, right? And it's a lot about, hey, we are just going to try different things, iterate, learn from customers, iterate really quickly, and move fast. And uh, big companies, on the other hand, will be spending a lot more time modeling on spreadsheets for days on end on what the expected impact of a certain feature is, right? So I think as a small org, you definitely have a lot of lot of speed and in execution when it comes to larger companies the ones like i work at i think there's what i have noticed is there's a lot of passion for the product like at youtube creators really really love youtube and they will go out of their way to like help us right and so that that's really amazing to see i think the other big advantage of like a bigger organization is definitely distribution i think if you want a lot of customers to use our features we get that like the next day but the pace is a lot slower given there's just a lot more complexity even in launching the smallest things there's a lot more due diligence done Um, and so i think there's like that trade-off that fundamentally exists all right thank you so last week on the podcast we talked a lot about user research and i was just wondering if you could both share a little bit about where the user research piece plays into the frameworks that you're using and the execution so like how long are you spending on user research how are you leaning on that to really move you know your products forward Liang, do you want to give us a few thoughts on sort of how user research fits into the bigger puzzle of execution? Yeah, I can, again, uh, like I shared before, like uh, I'm a platform product manager. So the the products that I ship are very technical and internal. And in most of the cases, we don't do a lot of user research. Uh, We did uh, a little bit of user research at Airbnb 
to all the engineering to figure out what's the end-to-end ideal journey for the development lifecycle. And uh, that was very helpful because we defined, uh, you know, the paved path, uh, you know, the, the, the right way to do engineering at Airbnb. A concrete example would be, I think the developer experience was very fragmented at, uh, back then. And we draw an analogy where, you know, you consider yourself a guest and you're trying to book a listing at Airbnb. You go to check the search bar, you find our listing, and then it directs you into, you know, a different payment page. And then you have to pay there. You know, the overall experience was very fragmented. You wouldn't want to do development the way that you do, uh, you know, like booking a listing in that way. So I think that's kind of what research, uh, user research has helped us to kind of lay out that end-to-end journey. But typically, I think what we do is really have developer survey. Uh, we have by annually or like quarterly developer survey, either from our own team or using a third-party vendor that are specialized in surveying developer experience. And then we analyze those data and to form themes and identify initiatives and pain points to work on next quarter. And I think those are typically what we do for developer experience. And Arjun, do you want to share a little bit about how user research plays into execution? Absolutely. I think given like with YouTube and there's just, we have so much data, my first instinct is always to go look at what customers are doing today on the product. What buttons are they clicking on? Where are they going? And try to come up with hypothesis on why creators are doing something or what they're doing. And using those patterns, we then go and talk to our user research team and tell them that, hey, these are some interesting insights we got from like the data. We just don't understand why creators or like our customers are doing this. Can you help us, right? And that's where we set up a lot more calls and have diary studies or have user interviews. And I just get to attend those and sit and ask a lot of questions to our creators. And, understand why they're doing some of these behaviors we observe, right? The other way we think about user research is actually on the foundational side. Let's say we want to kick off a really massive initiative that will require a lot of investment from a product engineering and design standpoint. And in that scenario, we really want to make sure that like the bet we are making makes some sense and there's an actual clear need for this. And it requires us to look at a customer from a foundational lens. And so we do a lot of foundational studies to figure out what are their true motivations and needs here and are our assumptions internally correct, right? And so I think there are different ways of using user research. One, to validate hypothesis. Two, to come up with like insights on what their needs and motivations are to help us inform what is the right product decision to make going forward. All right. Thank you both. Well, at this point in the show, I'm going to open it up to question and answer. So today I'll be leading that section for us. And so if anybody in the audience would like to ask a question, just go ahead and raise your hand and I will bring you up on stage and you can ask a live question. If you would prefer to stay anonymous, then you can also message me. You would just want to go ahead and Look for the the little uh, three dots by me and send me a note over on LinkedIn. All right. I see we have some hands already raised. So, Saket, I'm going to bring you to the stage. Thank you very much, Kara. A great audience and brilliant people. So I would take this as an opportunity to ask a question. I work basically on the merger and the acquisition piece of products. 
and many a times i have to make a decision about you know when we are purchasing organizations which piece of the new organization do we keep and which one do we let go of so from your experience liang and arjun i would like to know like you know what influences that decision making and how do you weigh upon like the users this is more about the retail and the property search area that i work in how do would you you know weigh in from which features of the new product you keep in from the company and which ones do you let go thank you yeah i can share a little bit that like bike then like before the pandemic uh we were really trying to expand in terms of uh not just having you know listing because everyone knows i like, oh if you want to book a room uh you can go to airbnb and if we started doing experiences or even like some of the uh, other travel verticals and then we decided to purchase or i uh, i acquire a lot of companies like uh, hotel tonight and uh we also have a luxury a luxury tier of every business and listings i think during those decisions really what it trickles down to is like is this acquisition going to help us expand our business but also ultimately move us towards to the long term vision which is enable everyone to belong anywhere at the very beginning that we position ourselves as yeah airbnb's are cheaper you know like the travel alternatives is not mainstream whereas uh you know as the company grow and continue to expand we want to make sure that we can have different product lines for different folks and one way to do that is really build everything in house the other way to do that is to acquire the companies that are already kind of mature and doing very well on their own and uh so we acquired hotel tonight uh during you know one of those acquisitions and we still kind of you know maintained different product lines separately uh just like microsoft acquired linkedin i would say it's really about making sure whatever product you acquire aligns with your company's vision and then like during the integration of different products during those technology transformations we really need the people to do do that and we want to make sure you know the culture the two cultures are aligned rather than like crashed uh so i think those are the two most important thing that we need to consider when acquiring a company thank you liang that's very helpful thank you for the question all right up next rose i'm going to move you to the stage here so that you could ask our guests your question go right ahead hi thanks for having me on yeah so i actually i have a unique question so i wanted to know how i can apply product management principles to my online business as a solopreneur on linkedin i wanted to use my linkedin as a landing page and i was wondering how i could apply uh, those same strategies as a solopreneur right arjun do you want to maybe ask a follow up question or kind of weigh in on you know how to just prioritize and execute for somebody who's uh starting their own thing I think the the approach here that I would take and something that I have found very that has worked very well for me is to take uh to step into the customer's shoes, right? I I really like to map out a user journey. Uh so I think about what are the different steps that my customer has to take and when they get to my LinkedIn page, what do they have to do, right? So having different chunks of 
the journey that you map out and how each part of that journey is being satisfied and how can you make it easier for them to go from point A to point B to point C and then get in touch with you um, or whatever the objective and goal is that you're trying to accomplish um, and how do you navigate them to get there is, uh, is a core kind of like user journey product principle approach that I have used uh, in designing a lot of products and coming up with solutions and addressing gaps and recognizing that when it comes to this entire funnel, where is a gap that we are observing and what part of the funnel needs the most improvement? Thank you. Can I ask a follow-up question? Sure, go ahead. Thanks. So when you say map out, can you just go a little bit deeper on the mapping out the user journey, please? Yeah, yeah, totally. So I can probably give you an example from my uh, product. So I work on YouTube uh, creator tools. And so what we do is we recognize that creators... Uh, you know, onboard into a certain tool. And while onboarding, they have to learn about this tool existing, right? And we realize like, okay, how do they learn about this tool exist? And so then we have to figure out how do we give them the right distribution and how do we figure, drive the right discovery to that tool on a place where they already uh, go to and learn from, right? So maybe the home dashboard is a place that they use a lot. And we're like, okay, let's like promote our new tool on this dashboard because this is where they discover it. Once they learn about it, then they click on it and then they see this new surface, uh, which is a tool to improve some sort of like creator action, right? And so we call that the second journey, second part of the journey, right? So they have discovered it, now they're onboarding into it, and then they go ahead and take certain actions to start using it. And so how do we make that usage of that tool much, much easier, right? And then the end of it, once they use everything, they, they really care about video performance. So analytics is a big piece. So they monitor whether it was successful, whether it was not successful. And so throughout this entire journey, we have the onboarding step, we have the discovery step, we have the analytics step, we have the tool itself, right? And we play the entire mapping and piece together how can we help them from step one to step two, step three to step four. That's really great. Thank you for clarifying that. That's very helpful. So I, I think the analytics would go last, right, for that? In that's the right, steps that's right. Process? Okay, thank you. Great, thank you, Rose. Lex, I'm moving you up to the stage now. If you could, when you get there, say hi and ask your question. Go right ahead. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for the past half hour. Learned a lot. Uh, Liang, your perspective on like the difference of a role in product management for a large and a smaller company uh, was very, very interesting as well. So my question is about... Last uh, last week, I had a product management uh, um, product manager over in my class, and he talked about what's important in a product manager. And one of those characteristics that he said was important was that you have to be curious about new technologies all the time. Uh, he named Cloud Two as a tool that he really wants to play with, so the the alternative to ChatGPT. And it was super useful. I played around with it a little bit and it was very interesting. What are tools that you guys are interested in right now that you are wanting to try or, or already have tried that could benefit all of us in our productivity or starting up a new project? Great. Thanks for that, Lex. So it seems like we always sort of veer a little bit into AI here. So Liang or Arjun, would one of you want to chat a little bit about the tools that you're using that you like? So. When it comes to new technology, it's something that I definitely uh, struggle with a little bit, given uh, I have a full-time job and I'm trying to like keep up with how the industry is progressing. Uh, but what I have found useful is to take 
time understanding some of the fundamentals in some of these new technologies and then playing with the existing tools out there. I don't think I have like particularly used that I use one on a day-to-day basis, a, a new tool, but I definitely play with a lot of them. The one that I absolutely recently discovered and, and quite loved is a podcast uh, summarization kind of app. So it's, I think it's called podpulse.io. And what it does is like all the famous like podcasts that you probably are aware of and the ones I listen to a lot of them while I'm walking or commuting. And I realized like that was so insightful and I just want the key takeaways. And I want to like remember this or save this in some way, but I'm always doing something with listening to a podcast. And this tool kind of just summarizes everything and gives me the key takeaways. And I think it uses like LLMs in the background to do it, right? And that is something that I have found really helpful and uh, has sparked a lot of different ideas on how we can do something at YouTube as well. Um, The other one that Google actually launched recently is called Notebook LM, and it's a new experimental product where you can upload your personal files or personal like essays or something like that and ask it to uh, summarize stuff for you or create a quiz out of it. And so I like to do this with some of my favorite authors where they write a lot and I just try to like copy paste those and then add it into Notebook LM and then ask it for like summarize summarizations on what are some key takeaways that I can refer back to and then save it, right? So those are like different ways I play with new tools and they definitely inspire what we can do for like our creators and our customers on a day-to-day basis. Excellent. Liang, do you have any you'd like to add to that list? I would say keeping up with technology trends are generally very hard and takes a lot of energy uh, as well. Because uh, especially in this era, I think there are just so many tools that you can find online and you can easily get very overwhelmed. What I found useful for me is really connecting with different people who are working in different industries. It's like, you know, like there are so many sounds you can listen to, but what are the sounds that you listen to day to day? Probably are the sounds that you listen on a radio while you're driving to work. And that's how exactly how I approach like different new technologies. I tend to try to socialize with people that are working in the cutting edge places and just try to learn like what they do in general. And then I can research a little bit tool after the conversation and play around with it. I would say chat GPT is definitely something that I've been working, uh, not working, I've been like playing uh, not really playing at this point, like using day to day, it's into like 20% of how I do my job. And the more that I use it, I found it's so powerful, just you can use it in different ways. And also like from the AI, like all the things behind it, there are so many new startups that are doing tools around the same place. I would suggest that anyone who's interested, you can go to kind of famous or like well-known incubators or investors where they have a list of AI t- companies that they're investing in. And from that list of like say 50 or 100, take the ones that pick your interest and then just uh, connecting with the people that are working on the tool. I'm sure that they are very willing to, you know, like give you a better version to play around with. And that way, I think you can expand your network as well. Uh, that's how I approach like new technologies. Uh, it's essentially through like connecting with new people who are w- working in those spaces and uh, get to learn that a little bit more. Thank you so much. Also, a tip is producthunt.com. I've heard that's a, that's a great one from that product manager that I met last week. So definitely check. It would recommend everyone to check that out. You can see all the new technologies on there. They're rated, so it's basically like a 
things like Reddit, you can plus one and the most popular ones are, uh, are coming up. So, but thanks a lot, guys. This was really uh, insightful. Great. Thank you. All right. Uh, Ikane, you're now on the stage. Come say hi and uh, apologies if I didn't pronounce your first name correctly. Hi, Kara. Hi, everyone. So my first name is actually Ekene. However, thank you very much for uh, bringing me up. So my question basically is, I work in product, right? Very many times I find myself consulting for um, a couple of other businesses, right? Or individuals who want to build software products for themselves as well, maybe for their business or to automate their business processes. So sometimes I, I literally find myself having a blend of product management and um, uh, let me say project management, yeah? So from your own point of view, are you going to say it's um, a good blend? Is it something very okay for me to um, proceed with? Because I've been um, struggling with that question myself. Is it something okay for me to proceed with? Or should I probably just focus squarely on the product part side of things and trying to attend product market fit and all? rather than maybe uh, distracting myself with um, other things around projects management. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can, I can take a quick step. Uh, it's, uh, you know, like towards the last leg of my Airbnb journey, I was leading uh, technical pro program managers directly for the several programs I was managing. I would say overall, product manager's job is really highlighting that inspirational vision and making sure that people see that vision and also know how to get there through your strategy and also execute on it so that you can bring idea into real life and the project management you know relies on uh, is kind of the the execution part which is the project management part that you were talking about i would say for someone who wants to break into product product management it's easier to start from project management as you manage the project or product day to day you see you get a chance or a glimpse of like how the idea goes from just a concept into different iterations and then launch into production i think through that experience you're able to see or get a lot of hands-on experience on you know how to ship great products and if you are a product manager that is you know you're already doing a lot of product management work but you feel like you want to get more experience in terms of scaling your product uh, in terms of managing different stakeholders uh, in terms of like managing bigger larger scope product in the future i would say uh, you know leaning on project management will give you that experience as well I do think these two roles are quite different in terms of the way that you think. A product manager usually think more what's the long-term vision. How do we get there? Why do we need to solve that problem now? Whereas the project manager usually manages how and when and who. And I think that's different in terms of how you approach problems. And I would you know, like get an experience of both and see, you know, what fits your preference. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. I wouldn't want to um, ask more questions regarding this, but I get your point exactly. So thank you very much. Yes. Uh, great advice, Liang. Thank you. All right. Next up, Kavya, you're on the stage. Feel free to unmute and ask your question. Hi, Kara. Thanks for the opportunity. So, 
I come from a finance background and I'm looking to move into product management role um, post completion of MBAs. So I'll be joining uh, Foster College this year. Now my, uh, I mean, I was listening to the conversation and I'm curious to know one particular thing. So we were talking about user research, right? And I think Arjun, you touched upon the point that a lot of foundational research goes behind the scenes. And say based on the research, you start execution. But does it ever happen that you have to reverse a decision regarding, say, uh, a particular launch of a feature uh, because you have spent a lot of time, but then you realize, okay, this is not doable. And if at all that happens, do you reverse it or you gradually pull it back as a form of upgrades in that uh, product? Or how does it happen? Yeah, happy to happy to touch on that. So in terms of user research and pulling back, right? So we do a lot of foundational research. And what we focus on is making sure that the foundational research um, we use those insights in the right manner, but obviously there will be points where we make the wrong assumption, even with all those research and launch something that is maybe not the best, or maybe we know it's like a little risky and we launch it. What I have found to help here is really finding easy and hacky ways to test a lot of your prototypes, a lot of your like features that you're going to launch before they actually reach production, right? So at least at Google, we do a lot of A-B testing, Right, and that gives us like the quantitative side of things. When you're at a smaller company, or when if a project doesn't have as many customers, like the recent ones I've been working on, then a lot of it comes down to intuition. You're like making intuition bets that maybe this is useful, and you launch it. And once you launch it, you are in user interviews, and you see creators use it, and you realize that oh my gosh, actually, this is not useful, and they are not having a good good experience with this and it gets in the way of what they want to do otherwise and there's this mentality of sunk cost where you can try to improve that feature or you can take a gut decision of like hey i don't think this is useful i think this is actually detracting from the primary goal and we then run another experiment where we remove it and then we see whether this uh, whether this actually had a net positive impact on the business metrics that we are looking at um, and so i think it's a little bit of like the experimentation and keep refining and iterating and sometimes you do end up with features that not a lot of people use, and maybe some people really, really love using them. And in those cases, you have to find a way to, to have access to that feature, but hide it in a manner that's only available for power users or pro users and not exposed to everyone else, right? And keep the product simple. Understood. Um, this helps. Thank you. Great. Thank you. All right, next up, uh, Gaurav, if you'd like to come off mute and say hello and ask your question. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kara. Thank you, guys. So my question is, how do you maintain the quality of execution after a layoff scenario, for example, when your team has been decreased a lot? All right. Do either of you want to kick us off there? Okay, go right ahead, Liang. Yeah, we have some uh, really uh, good questions. Yeah, layoffs. Uh, so... It's definitely hard uh, when we let our you know great team members go uh, because we need to focus or the economic downturn, whatever reasons there are. But I would say like quality is really part of your company's culture. I would think uh, from the very ground up when you start building your company, whatever culture that you're building, that's going to be in your DNA for a long time. I would say if a company that already takes quality to maybe one of the top priorities. Uh, laying off people does not necessarily impact that. Yes, uh, we have less team members who work on different problems, uh, but the quality that of those problems that we solve are still going to be there just because of the culture we're in. But I would 
also say like it is challenging if you have a smaller team. Uh, you have to balance the act of reducing tech debt versus shipping new features or uh, focusing on velocity versus quality. It's a fine balance. And uh, I would say it really depends on the stage of your company is at. If you're still kind of trying to find that product market fit or trying to grow your customer base, uh, it is absolutely crucial to value velocity over quality. But I would suggest that for the folks who are in that stage, be intentional in making those decisions and document all the tech debt that you're accumulating along the way. It is definitely okay to accumulate tech debt. I think a lot of people think tech debt are like very negative. Uh, I, I look at it a different way. I would say these are the things you take on, a loan on today so that you can ship faster. So as long as that decision is intentional, I think it's okay. And down the road, when we have the luxury to hire more people or to prioritize more on tech debt, we can do that. I hope that answers uh, the question a little bit. Thank you. It helped a lot. Can I ask one more question? Yeah, go for it. Thank you. Uh, The next question is completely different from this one. Uh, So let's imagine that the company has always been a national company. And now the company is thinking about expanding to the international territories. What would you guys say that is the biggest challenge in that? We are having a similar situation where we're expanding our products from the U.S. market to a different market right now. And I think the biggest one that I have found is understanding how the ecosystem works um, in these different markets. So, yes, the product might be similar or the same, but the ecosystem is very different and the context is very different. And so having your customers react very differently to the same set of features. What works in one place probably will not work in the other place. So you have to figure out what are the minor tweaks that you need to make to your product so that it's culturally relevant for that audience, right? Uh, I think that is very key. Even the external stakeholders, if you're a marketplace business, you work with two or three sides of uh, a party, right? And I think understanding their motivations and their needs really helps. And starting with uh, really small experiments um, and running like pilot programs to test and do a lot of like, again, foundational research will help you inform what is it about that market that makes their customers tick differently. And once you figure that out, you can modify your product and obviously comply with all the regulatory uh, frameworks and and the laws there to launch it. Uh, But I think that is the nuance that I have uh, come to take away as I have been in this journey. Thank you very much, guys. Great. Thank you for the questions. And next up, Gaurav, were you able to join us up on stage here? All right, go ahead and ask your question. You're going to be our last question of the day. Okay. Uh, hi, Kara. Hi, Liang. Hi, Arjun. Hello, everyone. So uh, just wanted to ask you people, uh, it's just an out-of-the-box question. Uh, so somebody coming from a background of sales and marketing and want to be a part of this clan, uh, want to work for the organization like Google, Microsoft, or let's say uh, YouTube or Airbnb or Facebook Meta. So in which way we can go ahead and make an impact? In which way we can go ahead and be a part of this uh, big organization? Uh, wanted your suggestion in that, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take that. So I actually help a lot of students and other folks in the industry with this kind of stuff. I think there are two parts to it, right? There's one in terms of the sourcing, like mm-hmm. how do you even 
get the interviews and how do you build your referral network? Uh, so I think that's a big part. Mm -hmm. um, and the other one is the interviews itself. Um, I actually have written an article on this called Navigating APM Interviews, um, but it, it covers okay. everything about all the different ways that you could go about addressing a product interview and what are the different uh, angles that you need to cover, right? Um, so if you type Navigating APM Interviews on Google with my name, that'll be the first article. Mm -hmm. It's my most read article. I know a lot okay. of people love it. So I think mm -hmm. on the interview front, that's going to maybe help. And I can pull a couple of things from it. Like mock interviews are really important. I personally did dozens mm -hmm. of mock okay. interviews before my before my interviews. Um, and the other mm -hmm. thing that I definitely found useful was actually listening to a lot of product-minded folks, right? So either podcasts or reading their books mm. or just interviewing Kidding. existing PMs at these companies and asking them mm. their insights and what they have learned what has helped them. And I used a lot of that input to build that mindset mm -hmm. myself. And okay. definitely on, on getting the interviews itself, I think you have to build your like network as well. And you're kind of doing that by attending these kind of calls, right? Okay. So uh, Arjun, I missed that particular uh, software that you mentioned, like in order to go ahead and get the crux of all the podcast, there was some uh, software that you mentioned, the name of it. I didn't uh, recollect that name. Yeah, it's called Pod Pulse. So P O D P U L S E dot A I. So I think that's the. Okay. It's a pretty basic tool, but I think it's very helpful. Uh -huh. Okay, thanks a lot. Because uh, to be honest, I I uh, go ahead and see a lot of podcasts. Let it be Joe Rogan or from India, it's uh, Ranbir Lavadia. The insightful session that they go ahead and do it. I I never learned it from my college degree, but trust me, I am learning from these people. Awesome. Well, we cannot disagree with the power of a podcast. All right. Well, thank you, Grav. And now I'm just going to give my guests here a chance to wrap it up as we head towards the one o'clock hour here on the Pacific Coast. So, Liang, any final thoughts on product execution? Uh, yeah, I think a final thought is I know you have to put in a lot of effort into you know managing the day-to-day -day work to make sure you actually uh, move the needle and also uh, make progress towards the vision that you already lay out. But at the end of the day, I think it's really a product manager's job to have that vision, but also bring that to reality. Otherwise, I think people would just say, oh, like you're just all talk and, you know, like there's really nothing that you're really shipping into the world. I think I actually enjoy more shipping things into reality. I think that gives me a great joy. Great. And Arjun, your final thoughts on product execution. Yeah, I, I think the big one for me is that product execution, the only way you get really good at it is to continue doing it and reflecting on how to get better. Um, I've also really enjoyed watching some of this more like director and vice president level product managers, right? Like watching them, how they do product. It's just fascinating. And that really helps me incorporate some practices and habits into my product execution um, frameworks as well. And so I think just do a lot of it, ship a lot of features, try to get to the nuts and bolts of this. And the more you do it, the better you get is what I have found. Excellent advice throughout the entire podcast. I can't thank you both enough. Great having you here and chatting with you about execution frameworks. Join us next week, audience. We'll be talking about the power of culture, building high-performing product teams, and your regular host will be back. Jeff, our professor, podcaster, filmmaker, Jeff Schulman, will be back hosting the show. Have a wonderful afternoon, everybody, and thank you for joining me. 